0: Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm gonna get that gun of mine, and I'm gonna change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't
1: believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels.
0: You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me
1: to my face you're never going to give me the scores I deserve?
2: Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Girls on Film. We recorded this episode in front of a live audience at the Albright Mayfair. The Albright is a membership club for women only, but men are welcome as guests, much like Girls on Film. Enjoy. <laughs> Welcome to Girls on Film, live at the brand new Albright. So new, I can still smell the paint. It's a beautiful place. (laughs) I have some very special guests for you this evening. The first person is a film critic for TV and radio, and a reviewer for the British Psychological Society magazine, Wendy Lloyd. (laughs) Welcome. Our next film critic guest is broadcaster and contributing editor of Empire magazine, Angie now, we have another special guest later, but first of all, we're going to have a little chat with these two. I've known you both for a while, but you've been in the business even longer, dare I say, than I have.
3: It's How possible. Rude. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> uh,
2: what I mean is illustrious careers. Um, I would like for the audience you to give a career highlight and a career lowlight, because being a film critic can be glamorous and can be not so glamorous. Wendy.
4: Okay, this might be a bit of a cop-out, but actually my career highlight is... At the moment, having completed a research project on film criticism, which we're going to talk about later, it really is something that's reinvigorated my sort of sense of being a film critic and the things that um, I think matter right now. So
0: that's definitely my highlight.
4: I'm on a high right now.
2: Yay! (laughs) I love that. Angie, what's your highlight?
0: Well, I thought about this because, I mean, I've been very fortunate. It sounds corny, but I've been privileged to interview a lot of people who are my heroes, like Robert Redford and Martin Scorsese and a lot of, you know, fascinating filmmakers and actors and everything. But I was thinking about it and I thought one of the most touching things that happened to me, I met a, a young woman at a lunch... And she told me that when she was a teenager and was avidly reading Empire, that she had read a review of mine of Ang Lee's Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. And it would never have occurred to her in a million years, she said, to go see a Chinese language film, but she said that it sounded interesting. So she went to see it, and she fell madly in love with it, and she became, you know, like... The biggest Ang Lee fan and and Chinese film and whatever she ended up working in the film industry and she said she just wanted to thank me. I felt like you know there was a purpose to it that somebody <laughs> had been turned on by something. I was really really thrilled. Good answer. That's so lovely. Yeah. I
2: like that. Mm. Any amusing not so glamorous
4: moments? Well, it was funny Angie's mention there about interviewing people because obviously that can be one of the great pleasures is interviewing your heroes. But it's true that. They're not all as fabulous as you might hope them to be. And one that always sticks out for me is I remember interviewing Val Kilmer in the mid-90s. You see, he's infamous. Um, And he was just really weird. And the it was one of those things where you couldn't kind of get a grasp on, did he hate me or did he not understand what I was saying? So that was a low light and it stuck with me for 20 years. So it must've been quite bad, yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Andy? Well, my low points. people think it must be so exciting and glamorous to visit film sets when they're on location, but somehow I was never the one who got to go when somebody was shooting something in Hawaii or the Bahamas. I was the girl who would be standing in the Wellingtons in a wet marsh <laughs> in, in Norfolk, or my absolute low point was a crazy film that never came out with an insane Swiss director. And it was shooting in an industrial part of Poland, and we were in a potato field <laughs> where it was pouring rain. And the food in the canteen at the studio it's was just—I it? mean, it was all just everything was just awful, awful. <laughs> except the vodka, which I resorted to. And I—but I remember him standing in the rain, thinking, "This is movies, yes. you know." Egh. Yeah.
2: Thank God for the vodka. Yeah. though That's it was the yeah. famous
0: old "Who do I have to, you know, what to get off this, <laughs> off this movie?" <laughs>
2: very entertaining thank you both for that and um, we're gonna come up to the present with the avengers endgame um now obviously this is out already already one of the biggest films of all time give us a clap if you've seen it yeah thank you someone's waving because they got a glass of wine and they can't clap uh-huh. thank you for the wave i've got it i've got it um do you mind if we do very minor spoilers is anyone else dying to see it Okay, fine, good. That's a definite no from that person there. Okay, great. So this is um, the grand finale in Marvel's saga, which is on general release. Um, The last one, of course, ended after the villain Thanos had dispensed with 50% of the population. Let's have a look at a trailer.
3: The world has changed.
4: None of us can go back.
1: All we can do is our best. And sometimes the best that we can do is to start over.
2: There you go, Avengers Endgame. Very long movie. I wasn't looking forward to it greatly, I've got to say. I mean, I've quite liked the other ones, but I found those endless action sequences a bit wearing. But I was surprised by how much I enjoyed this one, I have to say. I thought it was a really efficient way of wrapping things up. It was exciting. It was funny. It was moving. I mean, my God, I was nearly crying, and I'm not known for crying in screenings. I'm a sucker for time travel, there's the spoiler, so I enjoyed that. I thought it had things to say about survivor guilt, about trauma, about self-sacrifice, life choices, morality. I mean, it said it all within the framework of a blockbuster, but I thought it did it really well. Wendy, what did you
0: think?
4: I mean, similarly, the anticipation of a three-hour action movie was really quite hard work for me, and I try not to think about it too much in advance, and I was similarly pleasantly surprised. They paced it really well. Um, There's a lot going on, and yet the plot is essentially quite simple because it's picking up from the previous one. You know, what are they going to do? 50% of life on Earth's gone and these guys have got to sort it out. And that's kind of essentially the plot, which means it obviously has this blank canvas, almost, to allow all the characters to get their kind of finale their kind of show-stopping performance and I think it was done very well I mean having Robert Downey Jr's character having Iron Man as the central character and he was clearly the most popular when they ran the credits at the end the cinema went crazy mm. but I think they they balanced it out pretty well bearing in mind obviously the issues with yeah. Women with
0: women. Let's go on. And
4: you, you like Robert Downey Jr. in this? Isn't I you?
0: thought he was fantastic. I would give the man an Oscar nomination. Ooh. I've uh, seen about half of these films. I'm not Marvel comic book gal. Several of the films, I've wished I'd borrowed somebody's twelve-year-old to explain to me what the heck <laughs> was going on. And they're so noisy and bombastic. Mm. A lot of them. There's all these forty-five-minute action set pieces where they're destroying some city or other. Um, this one, yeah. I didn't feel I had to have seen twenty-one previous films because. There's a lot of emotion in it. There's a lot about character in it. There is action. But the three hours flew by. I waited until the hoop doo doo The initial furor had passed, and I went to my local one afternoon a couple of days ago, and there were five of us in the cinema, and only two of us were women. This whole phenomenon is more of a male thing. I was very pleasantly surprised. I know it had rave reviews, but I was still sceptical. But yeah. yeah.
2: It's interesting because you say it's more of a male thing. I mean, I felt in this one they certainly were making the effort to be more feminist. I mean, clearly this comes in a time where they know they have to pass the Bechdel test, and this passed within the first couple of seconds, actually, with the mother and the daughter. And I think the ending, again, not giving too much away, but there is a sense of passing on to the next generation. And I, for those of you who've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. There's a sense that this kind of white male privilege, perhaps it's had its time. And it was almost like an acknowledgement like, okay, maybe I was born into privilege, but maybe I'm not meant for privilege, so I'm going to pass on the baton to a different generation and a more diverse generation. So that was really cool. But then there were some kind of moments which I felt were really kind of woohoo, women.
0: There's a sequence where, um, again, without wishing to give too much away, they suddenly bring in, you know, every female. Hero that we can think of, the Wakandan warriors and whatever, and it, it's nice to see them, but it was a little bit, you know, cute. Yeah, I mean, it was a little bit too cute.
4: Well, it was kind of like tick box, really, wasn't it? And I think the thing is, is that the, the bar for Marvel is very low in terms of the amount of women <laughs> who get to be in it and have had a particular role.
2: We've got an audience question here.
4: My 15 year old son told me as we left the cinema that was put in at the insistence of the actress and it wasn't genuine. And he saw straight through it. Mm -hmm. He's 15. If he's a Marvel fan, my understanding is he would see through it because the whole point was it didn't make any sense. The whole point of all the other things happening during the film were that they were coherent to the history of Marvel. So this idea of suddenly going, oh, hang on, let's do this thing. And there was a huge cheer in this screening I was at. You know, Mm -hmm. everybody loved it. But as I said, that kind of illustrates how low the bar is in terms of, you know, what women get to do. But interestingly, the presence of Captain Marvel for me made the big difference because she's the most powerful Marvel. They had to kind of, I love the way they addressed the fact of going, well, why can't she just show up and sort this <laughs> all out? And they went, and she had to go, because there are other places in the universe than Earth. Yeah. And I quite like that. But she came in every now and did some heavy lifting quite literally Otherwise it would have been point. a short movie, wouldn't it? It, it would have been a, half been a hour very movie. short movie Marvel just would have out. sort it all yeah. out. Yeah, you know, my,
0: my big problem <laughs> with the premise is that I couldn't really buy it that if half the people in the world disappeared overnight that that's necessarily such a tragic thing. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Well, really, I mean, I know it's terrible if you've lost your wife and children, but...
2: We're going to have to move on to the next thing, but a a reminder that you can hear our Captain Marvel special in Episode 7 of Girls on Film with Brie Larson and Lashana Lynch, who were both fantastic. They were excellent. Yeah, Yeah. I love that. Give that a listen. Right, our next film, by contrast, is already out now, and it's called Woman at War. This is uh, an Icelandic film from director, Benedikt Erlingsson, about a woman, Halla, who's a choir director, a would-be adopted mother, and a secret environmental activist, just proving that we can do lots of different things at the same time. Isn't that fantastic? The director says it's an action film with no violence. Angie, would you agree? And if so, does that appeal to you?
0: Well, I would, and I think... First of all, I don't, I don't think I've ever met an Icelandic film I didn't like because um, the Icelandic landscapes are inherently beautiful and dramatic. And Benedict Erlingson's done something really confident here. He's mixed genres without you kind of noticing it. It works as a suspenseful thriller. In fact, it opens on a very Hitchcockian type of scene where she carries out this act of sabotage, and then she's pursued across open spaces like Cary Grant in North by Northwest by people chasing her down in a chopper and with drones and whatever, and she really knows her terrain and can she escape? A, and there's comedy, there's drama. Part of it's sort of environmental fable, and part of it is really timely, thought-provoking stuff. And what a wonderful performance from Haldora Gerhardt's daughter. She plays two roles, very contrasting characters. She's identical twins. We have this woman leading a double life who's a cheerful choir director by day and a an environmental, you know, terrorist by night, and then she's got this twin sister who's a Bohemian New agey yoga instructor. They couldn't be more different, but they're just wonderful. It's fantastic,
2: isn't it? I think that was beautifully put. Wendy, there's some very interesting stylistic touches um, to this film.
4: Specifically, the musicians exactly. and the Ukrainian singers, which was just magical. And they're there from the get-go. There's this trio of musicians. There's one on a piano, one's got a sousaphone, and... And there's a drummer and they, they are in the shots in the middle of kind of these huge Icelandic landscapes. And it's really beautifully done because it could have felt a little bit kind of like self-conscious and it would have been a bit clever. They're
0: sort of like a Greek chorus, yes, aren't so they? Yes, I know that,
4: that some people have, have kind of considered them that, or muses. Did you and, like it, you
0: know, Angie? No. Oh, <laughs> you didn't? I, I think <laughs> Why not? No, I think a lot, of oh people, a lot of people will love the soundtrack and the device. It reminded me of some horrible Serbian film I saw years ago that was supposed to be a comedy, and they had a band that kept popping up, and it was it was it was one of those comedies that doesn't translate well it's interesting because maybe it was the association but they were good they were very good <laughs>
4: and it did I'm
0: it kinda... with Wendy
2: I think it worked yes yeah. I think <laughs> it
0: worked. Yeah. thank you but I, I would appreciate <laughs> your input yeah. that. that was okay. funny yeah. we shouldn't all agree
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> no it's very good that we disagree we may disagree on the next topic as well let's see and this is um, a topic which is very close to Wendy's heart because it is the film Red Sparrow Wendy's been doing some research um, a lot of research for her undergrad project for a BSc in psychology on this based on the novel by Jason Matthews it's about ballerina, played by Jennifer Lawrence, who is recruited to Sparrow School, a Russian intelligence service. She's forced to use her body as a weapon. Wendy, could you briefly, explain your research and where it's come from.
4: Yeah, the, I mean, the idea was because I had to do a research project and. Obviously, once Me Too kicked off and it sort of shifted, you know, public conversation about things like on-screen sexual violence and representation, I thought it would be really interesting to see, well, has there been any shift in the way film critics are reviewing and talking about these things? And so I'm particularly into critical psychology, which is very much about looking at power issues and the way we use language to sort of construct these things and how they enable and perpetuate social inequalities. So the idea was to analyse some film critic reviews of this film in particular because obviously the character as Anna's just said is very abused and has a lot there's a lot of sexual violence in the film which you know if you've seen it so the idea was to look at the way that critics talk about that and see if there'd been any shift
2: so interesting let's have a look at a clip please which um may illustrate some of what we're talking about
0: you knew what would happen once i got him in that room didn't you
3: you wouldn't have gone if i told you what had to happen
4: it would have been a choice
3: you know what i do you came to me that was your choice
4: You're my uncle.
3: I would never have let him hurt you.
4: He was inside me. I
3: don't want to die. You don't have to. There's another life for you if you want it. You have potential, great potential. And you did well to get him alone. What you said in that bar was exactly right. Because you told him exactly what he needed to hear. There is a program that can teach you everything you need to know. The training is very hard, only if you make it. But you know how to survive, that's why I chose you.
2: So this is not a woman that has happily and voluntarily gone in to the spy game, right? No, she no. is
4: coerced, she is very much forced into it, and her character throughout is you know, humiliated, she is raped, she is violently assaulted, and she has no choice about anything that she does. So the key thing was saying, right, How is that positioned by the critics? Could you summarise the the key
2: points of your findings?
4: I mean, I think the the main thing is what I ended up finding out was that really there hasn't been a massive shift, and out of the 12 critics, three, two women and one men, took a specifically feminist approach to challenging the film. Um, The rest of them didn't, and overall, really, there was still the sense that... Being a film critic, because of the cinematic language that is very much isolated outside of social concerns, it's very easy still to disregard misogyny on screen and to discuss sexual violence in terms of its entertainment value. I feel very strongly about it, but I also recognise you can't tell critics how to critique, you know. And for me personally, I think my take-home on this is that I think it's really important that critics start questioning power issues because Me Too has prompted that. I think it just could shift things in a slightly more healthy direction. That's
0: very interesting indeed, um, Angie. You hadn't reviewed this, but you watched it recently for this. What yeah, and did you I feel like a it? bad person because I kind of liked it. But what Wendy's research has made me think about is this general idea of when you're reviewing a film: Are you reviewing it in terms of its cinematic value and its aesthetic success or failure? Or are you embracing societal issues? It's a problem, I mean, if this was 1918 or whatever, what would my responsibility be reviewing Birth of a Nation? Mm-hmm. If this was 1930s, how would I have reviewed Lenny Riefenstahl's films, which I have reviewed in the present with you know, a different viewpoint? I know what you're saying and I agree with you that now is the time that whatever, whatever field of work you're in, gender discrimination and, and the way women are treated has to be addressed. Well, that's right, but I'm interested when you
4: say, because this is kind of what I think is at the crux of it, because you're a critic, and you're saying you watch Red Sparrow and you enjoyed it. Well... What, what does that mean? Because obviously it means that on, either you enjoyed the sexual violence
0: or you could park it to one side. That's the problem. I am parking it to one side. If I say that I, as an espionage thriller and the game of, of wits she plays to come out on top and the way she turns the tables on all these men who have power over her was a very interesting premise, I thought. And I liked some of the spycraft stuff. I mean, the guy who wrote the novel was in the CIA for 30 years, so some of it's more real to me than, say, the Jason Bourne films or the James Bond films or whatever. But, yes, that was ugly.
4: I think there's a responsibility for critics with that because you're priming audiences when they go into the cinema. And I think if you're priming them to go, oh, by the way, you know, these, this critic's essentially signalled that this is a, the, the violence in this film, it's okay. Mm-hmm. I think that's unhelpful. What we have to do is just maybe start thinking what we're seeing because there's some automatic interpretations that happen because there's been 100 years of cinema and 100 years of criticism. When we step back a moment, we can question some of the taken-for-granted things. And they are the things that are perpetuating patriarchy and misogyny. And all of us in this room want to do something about that, don't we?
2: Well said. I reviewed this on Radio 4 at the time, so I watched it um, twice. And I've just got my notes here, but I said, it's a strange beast. It's an uneven mix of solemn spy thriller and sexploitation. Any attempts to be either an erotic thriller or a story of female empowerment, cancel each other out. So I think that was kind of my attempt to address the contrast that you're talking about, which is very complex.
4: Well, it is. And I think all the critics who reviewed from an overwhelmingly feminist perspective, they had problems doing it because what they were doing is trying to, you know, it was saying, right, I've got this socio-political point of view about this and this is what I'm saying and then going, whoops, I'm being a critic, I better make some references to do with cinema and they jarred because they don't sit alongside each other because the cinematic references are kind of within the bubble and the feminist voice is obviously a social voice and it's about social context. So, Do we decide that we'll just continue saying, oh, I'm going to make a point about misogyny and then park that and say, but it looks beautiful? And I kind of feel like, for me personally, I want to say... I'm not even going to give you any points for it being beautiful because this film shouldn't have been made like this. We're going to have
2: to move on from this one, but I would encourage people, you know, to tweet us and talk to us about, let's continue this conversation because I think what you're saying, Wendy, in your research is hugely important. Please, yes. say anything. So I'm at <laughs> Anna Journal and your Twitter... I'm at Wendy Lloyd Voice. Yeah, OK, so Thank tweet you. us, tell us what you think if you've seen it or if you refuse to see it, <laughs> out of feminist principle. We have a very special guest next, so if I could ask you to prepare the space... Our special guest is a BAFTA winning director and a former Grange Hill actor. She made A Way of Life in 2004 and went on to make the period drama Belle, which was championed by Oprah. Her latest film is Where Hands Touch, and it's out tomorrow. Please welcome Amara Sante. Yeah.
1: Welcome.
2: Oh, hello. Welcome to Girls on Film. Thank
1: you. It's such a pleasure to be here. I got completely engrossed in this conversation. Forgot I was coming up, practically. <laughs> well, that's um, a good
2: sign. I'm glad you're enjoying yes, it. Yes, I've got
1: to adjust myself.
2: We're big fans of your work, and it's so great Thank to have you, you here. And I've seen where hands touch. It's very moving. If you can explain to the audience a little bit more about the film.
1: Yeah, well, oh, that's a hard one. Um, yeah. So it tells a story of a, a young girl who's just turning 16. She's Afro-German in Nazi Germany. It's kind of untold history so it's the story of her struggle for survival and all of the various relationships she has in that final year of the war really as she comes of age it's uh, it's how can I say it's quite a tough traumatic story in many ways it, it
2: touches it? on such an interesting part of that time in history that I hadn't really seen yes. or, or engaged with and yes. what inspired you to tackle that
1: Well, it was really interesting because I put out a tweet with some of my research today and an Instagram with some of my research and I hadn't done it before and I've just got such an overwhelming response to it. I didn't know there were any black people in Germany during Hitler's reign and I think that was silly of me in some ways because why wouldn't there be? And I was making my first film, A Way of Life, all these years ago and I realised that um, Wales, where we were shooting it, has some of the oldest black communities in Europe and I didn't know this and it it struck me that the little tiny section of black history that we're allowed to know about in terms of African American history, I knew more about. Um, not a lot but just more about than people like me who are of the African diaspora but born and raised in Europe, we are Afro-Europeans mm-hmm. I started thinking about you know, how did the black French you know, the African French arrive in France and, and I lived in Holland for a period of time so how did they get to Holland mm-hmm. and we kind of blur it over with this idea of colonialism but there are meaningful stories behind those journeys of how people um, came to be there and I, I found an, an image of a, an Afro-German girl online taken in 1943, standing amongst what Hitler would have called Aryan schoolgirls at the time. She was about 14. And it just inspired many questions. And, and, and from there, I, I began to research.
2: And I don't want to spoil it too much, but I think this is a very brave film because it doesn't make it easy and it doesn't spoon-feed the audience and have any great no. changes of heart necessarily. No. And, and this is very complex central character because she identifies as German and in some ways sympathises with the Nazis, even though she's being alienated because of the colour of her skin? Yes.
1: So the Afro-Germans were the only group during my research, and I had to interview Afro-Germans as well, survivors of the period, who have this kind of um, spectrum of experiences. So the Nazi machine did not come after them in the way that it did Jewish people. And so the risk to young Afro-Germans was a little bit less quantifiable for them than the kind of massive stakes of life or death if somebody knows you're Jewish, what that meant. And so um, they were both insiders and outsiders. They were in school, some of them, after Jewish people had been removed, which means that they were literally surrounded by white supremacy. And this created a kind of identity crisis in in many of them. You know, the, the, the story is really about Lena coming to understand what is happening to the Jewish people, where they're disappearing, And as I say, it's about a number of relationships she has, in particular one with a Hitler youth boy who is also coming to understand what is happening to the Jewish people and also coming to understand that he's been spoon fed this idea of the war and what the war is about, you know, bringing back the honor that was lost in World War One, and discovering actually, as, as Elena says in the movie, that you know Hitler says the world is against us, but all I see is Germany killing its own people. Because it's, it's kind of that journey of, of, of coming to discover that and, and what that means, and coming to understand that still, as you say, that they are insiders and outsiders. The Afro part of her is the part that's been weaponized. By white supremacy and white supremacists to alienate her. And the German part of her is a part of her that has remained in school. And I, if any of you go onto my Twitter or my Instagram today, you'll see an image of a young, I, I think he's about six or seven in the photograph, Afro German boy wearing a swastika. And that side of the, these children who were completely submerged in this rhetoric that was foisted upon all children of the time because Hitler Youth was mandatory, where there are no books to challenge any other rhetoric other than Hitler's. They've all been burned, there are no teachers. Teachers that might teach something different have been removed. Every social and cultural influence is there to shape the minds so that young people hate certain sections of their society. And yet, this kind of integration is foisted upon you and the community that you have to integrate with are a community who don't want you either. There is this sense that you kind of inhabit two places at once and it's about her learning to find not just her own moral code, but also her own space within Germany and what it is to be Afro-German. You're obviously a very passionate filmmaker. Um, <laughs> I am.
2: But what makes you so compelled to tell stories?
1: I, I love cinema. I love film. And I'm not, you know, compared to all of you, I definitely have not consumed the number of films or, or, or know the amount about film in many ways that you guys... Ha- do but I love film and I like being taken on, on a journey and I like being asked to walk in somebody else's shoes and experience life through their gaze. I don't know if that because my parents are immigrants and you know they left home at a very young age and they had to come and you know experience life in a different way that you know we've always been travellers and we've always wanted to understand where we connect and where we're different and you know I don't want to sound like a hallmark card but you know where we might celebrate those differences yeah. in, in some way so i think it really just comes from that i mean cinema allows you to experience so many different kinds of artistry all in one uh, one space so you know there's there's fashion and there's the visual painting of the cinematography there's poetry there's all of this in one, one space and I love that. You mentioned fashion, you said a great quote to me earlier about high heels, you know can you repeat what you were yes. saying? Yes, I said the part of me that loves to wear high heels <laughs> is the same part of me that makes movies, it's the same part of me that picks the colour palette for my movies, it's the same part of me that wants to create poetry in the writing that I hope I implement, or lyricism that I hope I implement in my films it's the same part and I do feel that as women or men who might, might uh, might share the same point of view we should be allowed to do that we should be allowed to celebrate that creative side of ourselves that um, can be seen as completely feminine or not Mm -hmm. it's just a part of who I am Mm
2: -hmm. and you are a champion of the times up movement as we are Um, how do you think things have shifted in the last year or so
1: do you know what it's so i get asked this question often and because i feel like i'm right in the middle of it all it's very very difficult for me to know because you know we're we're looking at times up but we're also looking at this enormous corner that we're rounding at the moment in terms of race and in terms of representation and in so many ways not just race but Gender identity and so many different things. Mm-hmm. And I think that when you're in the middle of it, it's really, really hard to know how far around that corner we've got. Mm-hmm. I'm a black woman and I'm British and I've made four movies and I look around and it's a really lonely space at the moment, yeah. you know? Yeah.
2: How can people here in this room help the Time's Up movement?
1: Time's Up has come about because those who were deemed to have power took advantage of those that they deemed to not have any power at all. And I think one of the things that we can do as audience members, as people in this room, is to allow women to become powerful in film. So one way you can do that is to actually go and see their films. Go and see movies that are about women or by women and if we're really lucky, both. I know that there were box office names that have been massively impacted and it's because some of those people spoke out that also that Me Too was, was able to be born. But I do I do think that it, when those women truly if they felt they truly had power as opposed to feeling like there was a man who had power over them I think circumstances might have been a little bit different and it's complex and it's nuanced but one way we can do it we go and see a lot of male movies you know we go and see movies that are by men about men and it's so normal and you know one of the things about this film is it's about radicalization and I think we've all been radicalized we've all been radicalized into our idea of what proper cinema is what good cinema is what is good and bad and for the longest time that's been curated by men by the patriarchy so we change that by putting our buck you know, into the box office that women creators are involved with and I think that's a way to begin.
2: Well said. Him thank him. you. Let's have a round of applause for that. Yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. Now, will you say, um, you, you're going to leave us for the next segment, but come back for the Q&A, because yes. people might have some questions That's for right. you. That's right. Uh, in the meantime, if they want to see Where Hands Touch, it's out to yeah, yeah. It's
1: in very few cinemas. There's a limited release. It's uh, on at the and Please look for it. Please support it in its opening weekend. It will not be there next week if you don't go and see it. So thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> Pleasure. Thank you so much, Emma, for thank joining you. us. See you again shortly. Thank you. <laughs> What an inspiring guest she like was. Yeah. Fantastic. I feel energised by that conversation. Yeah, fabulous. And now he's going to be mean about some films now. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're going to be good about some. It's a mixture, yeah. okay? So this is the Begdell test section. If you don't know, it is a test of a film's feminist credentials. It's very limited, but there has to be one, there at least two named female characters who talk to each other about something other than a man. And um, extremely, extremely limited, and it's shocking how few things pass this test. So we've each, we each a pass and a fail. I have chosen High Life, which is also out tomorrow. This is the new Claire Denis sci-fi film. It stars Robert Pattinson, <coughs> who's stranded on a spaceship with a baby. That is a female baby. Um, women, ab- women appear in Flashback. You've got Juliette Binoche, Mia Goth, Claire Tran. They talk about each other, they talk about reproduction. This is a tiny spoiler. They argue about the mission and the living arrangements. So this is a definite pass. It's a very, very challenging film, and it's not for everyone. It's slightly dividing critics. Have either of you seen it? No, I was hoping yeah. to ahead of yeah. today,
4: but I haven't. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It's interesting you're saying it's challenging. It is
2: fascinating film, but it doesn't necessarily make... Feminism, easy. But that, that's kind of what I liked about it, because Juliette Binoche's character is, is, is a, a mass of many, many things. She's morally complex, to say the least, but she's intelligent and she's sexy. And she's, there's a lot going on in this film. It's kind of crazy, but I would recommend
0: it as an interesting watch. Uh, Angie, what did you choose for your past? For my past, I, I was looking at, at some oldies, oldies for goodies, and I, I went for a Betty Davis classic, now Voyager, because in recent years I was kind of getting fed up with it because um, when it becomes about the romance and the love story, by the, at the end we're supposed to be, you know, we're moved by the fact that she's happy to accept these crumbs of love that this man can spare her um, because he can't leave the wife and I, can, I forget why. But anyway. <laughs> A lot of it is really about power and domination, and it's about the m- very troubled mother-daughter relationship. Mm. And the conversations with the mother, with the nurse, with the sister, the sympathetic sister-in-law are about, you know, t- taking her life t- control of her life back and taking those fearful steps to independence when she's been cowed and belittled all of her life for every, everything she's done. And I, I quite like that, that she's, you know, for its era, that it's about, you know, a woman who learns who she is.
2: So that's actually quite progressive for its time, really, in, yeah. in some ways. Yeah, yeah. Yay, Betty! Um, Wendy, what did you choose for your past? um
4: I was inspired to choose Grandma, because yes. um, Paul, is it White's or Weitz? I don't know, but thank you. He obviously directed Bel Canto that came out recently, Mm. which I found a bit of a disappointment. Yeah, a bit disappointing. But Grandma is not a disappointment. It's fabulous, and you can watch it on Netflix right now. And it stars Lily Tomlin, and she's the grandma, Elle, to Julia Garner, fabulous actress Mm -hmm. um, I know from Ozark. I know she's been in many other Mm -hmm. things. She's the granddaughter sage. She gets pregnant. She needs an abortion out of state. She goes to grandma because she's got a bit of an uppity mum played by Marcia Gay Harden. And it turns into a road trip. And, you know, I just want to be Lily Tomlin when I'm her age. And I wanted <laughs> to have her as my grandma. She'd be the perfect grandma. You know, she gives you Betty Friedan's feminist mystique she'll get a tattoo with you and she beats up the bad boyfriend yes. and, and she beats up your useless boyfriend fantastic you, <laughs> what more do you need it's such a glorious film and yeah. it's um, really it's funny obviously because it's Lily Tomlin but it's also very touching
2: yeah really seek it out people If you haven't seen it that's a great recommendation Let's move on to our films that fail. Um, my Bechdel test fail is Love, Simon which I wrote a big article about in The Guardian because it was arguably the first mainstream teen movie with a gay hero and this is a debatable fail because girls do have really brief conversations with each other but if you go to the Bechdel test website there's just fervent talk about how it doesn't really pass but okay, you know, it's about a boy who's working out sexuality and he fancies boys and he has his one female confidant. Of course many gay films you know, failed the Bechdel test but Overall, I would say it's a charming film, and I really wanted to take the opportunity to say, isn't this interesting, but let's have more from the female perspective. But we do have some of those coming up, like Booksmart has you know, a, a lesbian, st- you know, is, is a central character. So don't dismiss Love, Simon, even though it fails. Now let's have another
0: fail, which might be a bit of a different change of tone, Angie. Oh, I picked Dragged Across Concrete, which is <laughs> like uber... Uber testosterone thing. I can't um, believe you watched it. It's.
2: it's I'm sorry. I'm, I think I slightly made you watch it. I felt so sorry I for would,
0: you. I, yes, <laughs> Anna dragged me to see this film, but
2: it's I actually heard you talk because Andy's known for being quite audible in screenings. He heard you go, "Oh my God!" at one moment. <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
0: it's written and directed by S. Craig Zahler, who's even, even his girlfriend has to call him Zahler apparently, and this guy. I mention this because he's got a substantial cult following. His Oeuvre includes bone tomahawk and brawl in cell block 99. So that kind of sums it up. I watched Bone Tomahawk after I saw Ooh. this, and that was even more, oh, my God. Um, he has intriguing ensembles. I mean, Mel Gibson, I'll tell you what, I started to cry in this film when Don Johnson appeared in it because he used to be so pretty. And, <laughs> and the same with Mel. There's an oh, my God, when Mel's in But it's, it's basically, it's about buddy cops who decide to com- commit a heist themselves, and it all goes horribly wrong at great length. And actually, it's very well-known Made. The guy is, knows what he's doing. He's a slick storyteller, yeah. pacing very interesting. He's, his films are all really long, but you, they're deliberately constructed. But he's, talk about the male gaze, my God. Yeah. Women in all of his movies, I, well, I've seen two of the three, but the women, the women in, in both films only exist to be taken hostage and humiliated yeah. or murdered, or if they're the wife at home, they're sort of disabled, so they have to be looked after, and that's why he has to commit the heist and whatever. I mean, yes. just a he, he physically
2: makes them all unable to, to move, so basically. He incapacitates
4: Nice guy. Yeah. I,
0: but, <laughs> but I, I mean, I, as in a cinematic experience, I, I think he's really interesting, and it's got people like Odo Kier in it, who's always good value, but it's so a guy's... Yeah. view yeah. of the world. and
2: I think Wendy could write a paper about it. So I, yeah, I was, that was way. just thinking
0: I mean, I I've read some of the reviews. If he yeah. sat down as a, in a demented kind of way making the anti-Bechdel test movie, Zoller's your guy.
2: <laughs> Good to know. Uh, Wendy, finally, what's your fail? Well,
4: my one brings us back to a fail that is still gorgeous. <laughs> this is the film that made me become a film critic because it came out in 1993. And it so got I Married an Axe Murderer. So I Married an Axe Murderer, um, starring Mike Myers, and it... Got some really mixed reviews and I remember thinking who are these uppity critics who don't know a good enjoyable film when they see one but it turns out 25 years later it doesn't pass the Bechtel test um, because uh, this is the glorious Nancy Travis and she plays Harriet who is Mike's love interest and Harriet has a sister played by Amanda Plummer who in the 90s of course just always played a lunatic in any kind of film that she popped up in So the sisters, they do not speak to each other throughout Mm. the whole film, which is slightly a plot device, but it obviously contributes to the issue. And then Brenda Fricker stars as Mike's mum, and she's fabulous. She goes around snogging Anthony LaPaglia stars, and (laughs) she's always getting drunk and snogging him inappropriately. And it's a glorious film. It's funny, and Nancy Travis's character doesn't have an axe, but she is a butcher, and she's a really kind of powerful character, and I love her, and it's... Very charming and funny, and I can almost forgive it, because it's a rom-com, and it was the 90s. Yes, you know that as
2: soon as it starts. it not got the laws as it first That's song. That's right, there she <laughs> goes.
4: Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It takes you
2: right back, yeah. Brilliant. I love your choices, ladies. Thank you so Thank much. You. That's fantastic. That's all for our chat on stage, but let's bring Amma back onto the stage. So uh, if you would like to pop your hand up and wait for the microphone, if you want to say anything, it can be a comment about a film, something you've seen lately, anything you're burning to disagree with or agree with.
3: Hello. Hi. Hi, I'm Hi. Um So my question's about, in the movie industry, there's a lot of emerging markets coming out now, particularly in Hollywood, and whether they're going to have a place in sort of more mainstream cinema. Do you think that there will be a time where actually we will get a mainstream opportunity to see those movies on a bigger
1: sort of scale? I do, if we keep up the push. I mean, I think that the, the thing is that Change takes a long time sometimes, you know, transition takes time and sometimes things happen in fads and I think it's how we turn a fad into more than a moment, if that makes sense. If we look at the music market and we think about some of the, when I was a kid, some of the areas of music that were absolutely, completely, like, marginalised music that have become really mainstream now, there's a model there, but it's a model that hasn't really ever been taken up by the film industry. So I think it's, again, it's about us as audiences really making it clear what we're demanding. I do think sometimes, not all the time, because, I mean, I do think that there there is... There are examples where there is just absolutely willful exclusion. And then I think there are examples where, you know, the colour of your money is, is, the, is the thing that makes a difference. Do you know what I mean? So we have to go and see this stuff when it's on at small art house cinemas. We have to go and see it and make them realise there's an audience.
3: Do you think critics might play a part in getting those movies an
1: opportunity? A hundred percent. I mean, hundred <laughs> I mean, percent. I mean, when you're talking about marginalised markets, most of the time, the only way we can get to an audience is through the critics. And the that becomes an issue
4: d- d- depending on the outlets. I mean, a lot of outlets will just say, We're, you know, a lot of films come out each week. You know, 25 years ago, three yeah. or four films would come out. Now there's sort of 10, 11. So obviously the newspapers and the magazines, they've made less and less space available for reviews. Completely. And they tend to say, we just want the big three. So, you know, there's, there's limited opportunity sometimes as a critic. So it's hard because it, it, it means we've got to fight also for the
1: space to talk about those But ones. I think what's changing and what's different is that, the way to access what critics have to say is also changing. There are platforms like this one. We can go to podcasts. I mean, I listen to a number of film podcasts, and I love nothing more when I'm driving across Europe, or my husband is, because I can't drive anymore, than (laughs) listening to... Because some people were meant to be driven. Um, (laughs) um, but to listen to a podcast while we're, we're, we're doing that. And, and there are different ways that you can access, you know, and, and you know what? Actually, in many ways, the distributors are listening. I know that when I've had films on release with big distributors, they know that those YouTube reviewers people are, are listening to them. So there are, there are, there are, there are yeah. other outlets as well. It's about us showing that those, those outlets also matter and that we want to listen to, to these ladies when they're also speaking on other outlets like this. Great. Right. So listen to Girls on Film, that's what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Listen great. to Girls Thanks, on Anna. Film. Yeah, yeah
2: definitely. <laughs> and the others. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that's a great question. Thank you so much. Hi everyone. Hello. <laughs> um, this question is kind of directed at Emma, but feel free, anyone on stage, if you want to kind of contribute. Um, you mentioned earlier when you were talking about kind of it being quite lonely at the top or where you are currently in terms of representation. Definitely not at the top. Imagine me Scorsese. <laughs> Scorsese with four films. That's, it's <laughs> it's, a, it's a big step, trust <laughs> me. Yeah. What I wanted to ask was, what was your inspiration to even put yourself on this stage? Because, yes, it's four films, but I'm sure when you were younger, you didn't really see that much representation. So what was your, that key moment you thought, you know what, I can do there's a space for me to tell my story? You know, I don't know that there's a moment, and I don't know that you ever really believe that you've... Uh, this is a terrible thing for me to say, but you're ever in a space where you think I deserved and I did it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? I think you're constantly striving to tell those stories because so you know. After I won my first big award, I I, I didn't think doors would fall down, but I thought it, they'd be easier to open, and they weren't. Every single time, I've had to go back to square one. That, that doesn't mean to say that again you don't do it you don't try but I think the inspiration is a really basic one which is when I sit in the back row with ordinary audiences they don't know that I'm there and I see that communication between the the, the story and the audience that that is what makes me want to tell stories and when I went to movie theatres and I saw other filmmakers work having that impact that collective experience of watching a film together and responding together and then having conversations because you feel differently about what you saw and what you felt afterwards, that completely inspires me you know, in so many ways. So that, that's what keeps me going and what made me want to get into it in the first place. And also ignorance. I mean, I got into it completely by accident, so if I'd known what I was getting into, I might have thought twice and I'm glad that I didn't. But I am also now glad glad that there are those people who are there that weren't there when I was growing up that are there to... to to be the beacons to say this is possible, you know. Yes, yeah. great, brilliant. Thank
2: you. thank
1: you. Hi, I'm Natalia. Hi, Natalia. Hello. Uh, firstly, to say, Girls
3: on Film, amazing podcast. So thank you for that. Oh, thank um, you. And Emma, I find you really inspiring. And as a young black female voice director in the video game industry. Um, I I'm get in the
1: video game industry. Yes. We'll talk. We will talk. Okay. We will
3: talk. Um, well, I started at 25. I'm 27 now. Um, and I found it quite a struggle being not only the youngest female black voice director for video games in the UK, but also walking into the room full of men, essentially, who have been doing things for a lot longer than I have, of course, and you're trying to prove yourself essentially to a room full of people that may not potentially believe in you either because you're female because you're young or because you're black or all three or all three (laughs) just how did you find obviously you've explained getting into film and writing and directing but how did you get over that hurdle of walking into the room and being the first or being one of the few black female directors to get in
1: well well, race aside I'm willing to bet that all of us sitting up here would possibly be able to comment on that. Absolutely. And I'm still proving myself. I'm What you are experiencing, I still experience. It's really nice now to be able to refer to a body of work. But you know, somebody asked me at a different Q&A recently, how does it feel to inhabit both spaces, where you're all at once hyper-visible and hyper-invisible all at the same time? So when things go wrong, you are there to prove why something can't work, you're hyper-visible. And when things go right, you can become hyper-invisible. And that isn't going away at the moment. It's part of what we're working... All of us are working towards eradicating in some way. All I can say to you, and this is is pure inspirational talk here, um, I can't offer you any tangible evidence behind it, is to know and understand that your vision has a value. It absolutely has a value. And... Sometimes these guys in the room know it and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they know it and that's partly <laughs> what, what causes some of the tension and sometimes they don't. And sometimes I still feel that way. I still feel that way when I'm talking about work where I've researched for 12 years that I know inside out. I still feel the, the, the lack of confidence. But what I fall back on is that I know go back to that feeling of audiences in the room Mm -hmm. and know that once I somehow navigate all of those obstacles and I always um, sort of compare it to being on the rugby field and you're running, the ball is your vision or your story and you've got all these people coming at you and tackling you and you've just got to get to, you know, (laughs) over to the other side and once you get over to that other side and your audience meet that... Piece of work, how they feel, how it inspires them, how even they may not be filmmakers or storytellers, but just how it connects to them. And I think that's what you've just got to hold on to. And it is, you know, it is, it is a war out there sometimes, but there's a, there is a light at the end of the tunnel and there's a reason to tell your stories. And th- honestly, that's what you've got to hold on to. Thank you. Yeah. Um, hi, I'm Stella. I'm 17. This may seem like a bit of a simple question, but I was just one. I'm very interested in. Inspiration, um, you know for me when I watch Pedro Almodovar's films, that's one of my biggest inspirations, or Barry Jenkins, love him, um, so I was just wondering who are your biggest inspirations, like is there has there been a certain point where you've just been like oh that's it, like this is the film that I, or yeah. a certain film director, or just even a moment i had really big inspirations and I think some of them might surprise you and you might laugh in some ways but um, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Scorsese and absolutely huge and, and you won't laugh on that but um, when I was 13 years old I, w- I went to stage school and um, there was a woman who was making a film and she. Uh, a lot of the extras were coming from my school um, I wasn't allowed to be in the film because I, I didn't I didn't, as a black girl, I didn't quite fit into the world that she was creating, but she was one Barbara Streisand, and she was making Yentl. And I was completely, and still am, blown away by that movie. And in fact, when we made Where Hands Touch, Amanda Stenberg, who didn't know anything about the movie, and I would rave about it every day, and she'd look at me with, like, an empty gaze um, went off in, in Belgium and found a store that had the, the soundtrack on original album and brought me that so that kind of still stands on my, my wall today and Yentel I found amazing for so many reasons, first of all it was ambitious and it was epic and that she was the woman at the helm and I, I hear a story that she was, she had to sign something that said that if she went over budget it would come out of her wages, I just want to know the man that they make Shocking. do that but um, the story Story, this story of a woman who has to pretend to be a man in order to get education, and education completely... I know there was a love story in there as well, but that was the part that gripped me, was who she had to pretend to be in order to get an education. I just thought this was... It was just the most profound thing at 13 years old I'd ever seen. And so um, I, I would say her, I would say Julie Dash, who's an American African-American woman director who made a film called Daughters of the Dust, uh, which was a big inspiration for me. Kubrick, massive, massive um, inspiration. I mean, there was a Spielberg, I love Spielberg. All the movies that people don't like like that Spielberg made, and I know they like many of his movies, I love. (laughs) You know, I love. So there there are just so many. And like you say, there are moments. I have to say most of my inspiration though comes from paintings and photography. You know, I'll see a painting and a whole story will start to unfold in my head. I'll see a moment, you know, that's captured in in a piece of photography and, and, and music. Music. I can't write without music. So I, I draw my inspiration from many, many areas. And sometimes I'll just be sitting and maybe it will just be watching, you know, two people talk, like I've been or three people talking and suddenly something will, will come to mind. So real life, yeah. real life and real human beings, you know, the human beings behind... Are you
2: saying you've Everything just thought of a film right now watching us? I'm filming like a it. film, yeah, I'm <laughs>
1: filming a film. You'll be reviewing the film that you're in. Oh, wow, in. And it's always very funny to see if you recognise yourselves in it because most people never really do, so... <laughs> Love it. I find that fascinating. Well, I cannot wait to review
2: that on Girls on Film in a couple of years' time. Um, thank you, audience, so much for your wonderful questions. We're going to have to wrap up, but do come and say hello afterwards. Many thanks to Amra Sante. You've been a fantastic. Thank, thank you so, thank you so very much. you very, very <laughs> so
1: brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank
2: you to Angie Erigo, legend. Thank you very much. Thank you, Wendy Lloyd. Fantastic. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you to the Albright for having us in this beautiful new space. Um, Thank you all for coming. And um, do please download the Girls on Film podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. And thank you for being Girls on Film. Thank Thank you all. Thank you for listening to Girls on Film. Girls on Film is an HLA production produced by Hedda Archibald and Jane Long. The next episode will be coming to you from Cannes Film Festival. Bye.
0: My name isn't Ancho. It's gentle. It's